Okay, welcome back to Sylvania Gals, everyone. I'm Margaret. And I'm Bridget. And today we have a guest. It's a guest day. Someone that was pretty big in my life. I think I mentioned him in the podcast on uh, running. Mm-hmm. He is my older brother. He's my oldest brother, Rich. Oldest, and he was the yeah. oldest of six, and I'm the youngest of the six. So. My uncle, who I I I actually used to be very scared of you, <laughs> Uncle Richie. You probably remember, right? Welcome to the pod, Rich. Yes, uh, Rich Wismer on this end. I remember scaring some of the younger members of the family, and I am not sure why. Um, <laughs> I was a lot taller than Bridget when during those early days, so maybe a towering figure or something, but I would just smile at her and she would <laughs> grab her cousin's hand and hide behind a leg. So, that fear is long gone. Yeah. yeah, you were a tall guy. You were a tall guy. It's catching up, yeah, yeah. I was tall back then. But, <laughs> We're all uh, shrinking. I'm just leveling things out. Uh, so we were just talking about your 20-mile runs that you used to do. I guess you were in high school when you did that? Yeah, we uh, started going out for longer and longer runs. And I was running with Jack McFarland in the summer. So uh, 10 miles got to be pretty easy to do. And, and really the round trip we were doing was to the Nabisco factory up in Somerton. So we would start in Northeast Philadelphia. That was an 18-mile run. And we'd run those on summer nights after dinner. And uh, I guess people were just stunned. What are you doing that for? <laughs> but yeah, that's what we used to do. Yeah. Did you run up the boulevard? Ran up the boulevard because at night, that was one of the only safe ways. You, you had a nice sidewalk all the way. Uh, sometimes we'd come back on Bustleton Avenue just to make it a round trip so it wasn't too boring. But in Philadelphia, uh, there were a lot of good sidewalks. So once you got going, you could really run all night on a well-lit street. Right, right. That's and you crazy. You got to uh, smell the Nabisco factory. <laughs> I did, yeah. You, you could get the odor. That's when you knew it was time to turn around. <laughs> Is that like cookies? What's yeah, that? that's where the Oreos were made, right? It's, uh... Oh. Yeah. Right, right. So you were in the track on the track team in high school, I guess, right? That's right. I um, yeah, I was training to uh, come back for cross country season in, in the uh, in the fall for senior year. Yeah. Well, I I told I remember you running in the winter, and when you come back, you'd have icicles in your hair. Yeah. Once you get started, that's the thing about running to build up the endurance. It's a year round, even when you're so called off season. And the hairstyles were longer then, and you know you'd uh, wear a knitted hat, a turtleneck, uh, but the sweat would start running down. And on those cold days when it was below freezing, yeah, I, I was full of bicycles in the back. Now, you didn't need to steal it when you were running. Right. It looked pretty horrible. It looked like you were frosted over when you came <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, you got those days behind you, I guess. My knees finally wore out. I couldn't compete anymore. And, uh, Right. Getting in the pool more, I hear. Yep. Now, now, uh, I lap swim, and, and one thing about swimming, you can you can tear up your rotator cuff, so you have to be careful there, too. Uh, something's always catching up with you, but yeah. I'm still at it. Yeah. So, should we ask him about your his COVID experience? So, you were, uh, 
You always went into work during this past year, right? You were deemed an essential worker. Wait, but yeah, before we, well, like, what actually do you do for work? Because my understanding is you sell air conditioners. Not a full enough explanation. What I do is uh, I'm a manufacturer's representative. So when you think of an air conditioner, you think of the system you have in your house. I have large commercial systems and systems that are designed specifically for special spots like hospitals and university lab laboratories. Um, uh, the University of Maryland has some of my equipment as, as well as other big installations. And what the role of a representative is, is to get a contract with a particular factory that's remote from the area. They cannot afford a full-time employee in the area, so they contract somebody like me and my firm, and then we go out and market for that company. So I have about 20 different factories I represent. Um, you know, say five or six I do a lot of, and then the others are, say, support, or I do once in a while. But that's 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 what a representative does. So, so I meet with the would-be customer, I meet with the owner, and I meet with the engineers to all explain how the equipment works. And hopefully they are inspired enough, impressed enough that they want to buy it and install it. But it takes a, it takes a long time to uh, develop a product. Uh, my wife, your Aunt Agnes, she realizes how drawn out this process will be, and she'll say, well, are you working on anything new? And I said, yeah, why? And well, because it takes about a year sometimes to develop these big projects. And uh, so so we're working on some new things and selling some things we've been at for a while. That's what I do. And it's all HVAC. It's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Or some people just call it HVAC. Yeah. And you, you didn't really slow down. Your job didn't slow down a whole lot during the pandemic. Is that right? Well, my routine stayed the same. Um, and I went into the office because we were just naturally socially distanced in, in our office. I was never really crossing paths with that many people. We, we have a small independent company. The pace of business was slower, but I still wanted, in fact, I was probably needed more work every day um, because you just don't want to miss anything when, I, when a call comes in. Mm. My, my usual routine when things, if things are not back up to uh, full full activity. My usual routine is to, to stop in the engineering offices and hand them literature, get started on projects, but the engineers, because of what they can do with computer-aided design now, they're they're all at home. They don't want to come back to work. So they're they're at home looking at drawings on their t- you know on their laptops or big screens if they have it and uh, they're gradually coming back to work. Contractors who have to install it, they're in the office. So, so there's some people to see there, but I'm just gradually getting into my more routine where I'm on. I'm, I'm going into other people's offices to visit them to represent my factories. Right, right. So COVID didn't really affect you all that much? Oh. The other thing that didn't affect me that much is because Aunt Agnes and I live in a condominium and our routine is to, you know, it's, the kids are grown, nobody's at home with us, so there's not as much activity. There wasn't as many restaurants to go out to, but we went out once in a while. But our life just slowed down a little bit, other than it 
we would at any other point in our life it would have been turned upside down um, with kids not being in school but, right. and the worst was during the, the COVID stretch when my gym was shut down because I had been exercising pretty routinely say three to five days a week um, and the, there was no gyms allowed to be open just like Pennsylvania when I was living in Maryland and you know they first opened they opened without showers being available <laughs> and they gradually opened the showers then last month they took down the plexiglass and there was no mask mandate but that three months maybe of uh, mandatory gym closures that was not too much fun right all right so should we start talking about the some family memories yes Know about. It would go back a long ways now. Yeah, I know. I really okay, well, since we were just talking about you swimming, um, you have something that you weren't allowed to swim until you were a teenager. Yeah. I know this about your mom. She was terrified of water, right? Right. Mom didn't like the water. But, yeah, you mentioned that to me, um, you know, a couple weeks ago. That You said we were in a very strict family, and then uh, we were on vacation once when you were a teenager, and that's where you learned to swim because you weren't allowed to the public pools or something. Is that right? But yeah, Max Myers was the public pool, and we were not allowed to go because we couldn't swim. So it was spontaneous. We were in Quebec for Expo 67, so that tells you when that happened. And we liked this one little resort we were staying at, so we just stayed a longer time, and uh, maybe three days. And we loved the idea. They had a heated pool. We were up in Quebec, so it wasn't as warm as filling up your summer weather. But we learned to swim. There, there was some idle time. We were at the pool all day, and our father taught us how to swim. And we weren't great, but you know, we gained confidence in the water and then started going to Max Myers. So you weren't allowed to go because you because you couldn't swim. It wasn't. But you right. you only learn how to swim if you go. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and, and there was no uh, there was no inclination, I guess, to put us in swim lessons. I didn't think about it. All right. Well, you yeah. you mentioned that you know you thought our, we lived in a pretty strict family. Otherwise, what? Why did you why did you say that? So simple things like. Uh, we were not allowed to go outside the house after dinner during regular time, daylight savings time, of course. But uh, I said, I want to go out. And everybody else was out, like Alan Brookman, Joey Zach, all those guys would be out, out and around. And our parents couldn't believe it. Like, what are those kids doing outside? You can only be up to no good. 11, 12-year-old kids walking around the block at 8.30 at night. <laughs> we were just never allowed to do that. I was I was thinking about this this morning because I got up and the movie Patton was on. Patton with George C. Scott came out in 1970, so I would have been 15. And that movie was off limits to us because it didn't have the right rating and the Catholic standard and times might have rated it as too violent and a dead language. And it just shows you how things have changed over time because when you watch Patton uncut, it's hardly an objectionable movie for a teenager. But at that time, I was envious. My, my friends saw Patton, some of them younger than I am. Like, nope. <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> we weren't allowed to do things like that. Right. I remember we weren't 
allowed. Well, I yeah, I, we sort of grew up in two different families for a lot of reasons. But it, I sort of remember it being if you didn't eat all your dinner, you weren't allowed out after dinner. Oh, well, that was, yeah, now, now I never had problem polishing off the meal. I, I ate whatever was put in front of me. And uh, Billy and Jimmy were, were the, the biggest, uh, the, the, that couldn't finish a meal. Right. And Radowitz would poke his head in the screen and ask what was on the menu because I would <laughs> tell him Billy was coming out or not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mrs. Winsworth, did you have peas tonight? <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of stories around their brother Tommy, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, there's, there's a 1967. That was the uh, time he was pretending he got lost in Quebec City, and he was just over the hill. You know, we, we, we knew where he was the whole time. He was never really lost. Yeah, there are a few stories there. So the vacations were always a big deal, I guess. Even though, I guess we went on, there were really only four big family vacations. Probably were at Seattle. We have some some of these um, pictures in, in the family album when we took a two week vacation in Seattle. That was really great. We did we did two weeks, and and Daddy only took one week with us. And then one of those weeks he went to work and came down to, in the middle of the week. And I just thought that was the living end. Getting getting two straight weeks in Seattle City. Yeah, I had no, I had no idea about that. Like, I never thought our family. I was, I might not have even been born yet. I feel like there's a picture I remember where we were going over when we were at uh, when John was set. We were looking through them, and uh, there's there's a picture of the three oldest ones, and uh, I, I remember it was taken at that house. I remember what the house looked like. It was sort of set back. You had to walk down a. a Hojo's, the Howard Johnson's that everybody was always looking forward to. Yeah, and Daddy uh, said one time, well, I'm getting tired of uh, Howard Johnson's food. I said, how could you get tired of Howard Johnson's? Just order something else on the menu. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much you could order. And uh, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, I was 
plate and one night I just looked down at that menu and I went, well, let me try the steak here. And it was a Howard Johnson steak. It wasn't like elaborate. And the waitress was just staring at me. It's like, you can eat a steak dinner? <laughs> well, yes. And, and she goes, the, we're, the parents were sitting at a different table. Your son just ordered a steak dinner. Is he allowed to order that? And, and I was, and it was pretty good. And I was appreciative. And I said, oh yeah. She set that in front of a bill he did. Yeah. About um, wow. the night where um, the bill came out, this is telling that that whole family went out to eat and the bill came out to $20 at a penny. Twenty. Wow. Yeah. And he put, put down the $20 bill and he's reaching and hands the check to the girl running the cashier. And he's apologizing as I'll listen. I'm sorry. I don't have a penny. And she just looks at him. Her face sort of drops and says, well, I'm going to have to put you in the kitchen. You can start cleaning. <laughs> oh, I can pay. I'm just going to have to give you another dollar with this 20. Oh, okay. <laughs> John, Uncle John saw that happen. I didn't see it happen. He told, he told that story for years. He thought it was hilarious. I want to hear about working in your dad's shop, which is something I've never heard about before. Oh, okay. Yeah, how, uh, yeah what did dad do, and how, how young were you when you started working there? Well, 12 in earnest. Uh, what, what he did was he was a distributor of, uh, of parts. Arrow was his big line. But he, had, he had a couple lines. And, and, and those, those parts that they were selling in the shop were meant for uh, lubrication equipment for gasoline stations and auto dealers. So they would be like grease guns that, that if you go into a mechanic shop, they'll have oil hoses and grease guns and, and, and drums and stuff. And those fittings and those pumps and those handles is what was sold out of that shop. And the reason they, now that was storage shelves and they had a lot of shelving to take care of all this equipment, but they also did some pump repair there too. So he was, you know, and, and they would switch back and forth. Somebody would run the shop inside and somebody would go out and make service calls. But they stopped switching because my father was much better at handling the customers and this partner was better at, he liked going out and doing the work and pulling wrenches. So they said, yeah, he's, the other guy's too short with the customers. We'll let, you know, we'll let my father uh, do things and handle the business. And so, so he was in the shop so much, we would start going to work with them. And probably the earliest days, we wanted to go to work because we could get some snacks and free sodas. They had these little uh, Coca-Cola uh, bottles, like the eight ounces or whatever they were in that day, stored in the refrigerator. And we always wanted to hit that refrigerator for a Coke. And uh, then he got us to do things. And then I, so I started knowing how to shelf things and helping people unload trucks. They would take a load of equipment in bulk then sell it piece by piece. And John got to be very good at handling the desk for shipping things. So he would be making out the UPS slips. And, you know, we were probably 10 and 11, and then 11 and 12. 
And I can remember Andy McConnell saying he I had to rate the weight on each ticket. And he says, you know, I'm not sure what this number is. And he says, ask him, it's his brother. And I look at it, he says, he wrote 11. He says, are you sure? He said, yeah, I know his writing. Um, so, so one of the things that happened there is I got to handle the, the trucks when they could come in. And I say, Dewey Pyle is still around today. And he started knowing that. He started knowing when the trucks would come in. And he says, I have a big shipment come in. Can you come into the shop? It's over 100 boxes. So the routine was you get all the boxes off the truck, and then you had to count them to make sure it matched. Well, it got to be where I would see the truck pull up at the window, run out, throw open the door, this 12-year-old kid, prepubescent, truck driver, say, got a shipment? Good, let's get them. I unload the thing, add them all in. Okay, I'm ready to sign. Some of these drivers are new, like, what's going on here? I never saw anybody in the place but this kid. This one guy, Tom Buttinger, he was one of the salesmen. He had contract salesmen working, going out and selling equipment. Um, I helped him. He, he had some things coming in for one of his customers. And I did this all the time. So I'm loading boxes. I'm counting things. And I set some of the inventory aside for him. And he said, well, I really appreciate that. Here, here's a dollar. And, of course, this is in the 60s. That so was a nice change for an hour. And I said, oh, no, that's okay, Mr. Pottinger, let's do that. And he pulls me close and he says, listen, I know it's a nice thing to decline the money, but take it. You earned it. Someday, you're going to turn something down, you're going to regret it. So this is something, I'm not just trying to be nice, I think you earned this money. And I, that made a huge impression on me. That it made a huge impression on when I offer things to people. If I offer something, I want them to take it. <laughs> and if I yeah. get offered something and I really want it, I don't refuse. I just remember looking up at that man like, wow, I'm taking this dollar. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. So that was one of my big tests at the shop. First dollar you ever earned, huh? Yeah, yeah. The pay wasn't that high. They were afraid that we were getting too much spending money. Then I started making these cables. They started, they brought this process, and you'll still see them if you go to fill your own uh, gas tank. There's a cable that plugs, when you pull the hose to your nozzle, your, the hose is on a cable that retracts it back after you're done. Yeah. Well, that thin cable is what we were making in the shop. So he said, oh, we can make them on our own. So they got a crimping machine, and then I started working by the piece. So I was coming in and doing that, and then he started relying on me more. Then I was getting older, like 13 or 14, then I'd want to go out and play baseball or something in my days off. Then it was getting to be a little tug. Oh, come on, I was counting on you. We were running out where the sales were picking up. And, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't destined to be one of the shop workers. Right. Yeah, they had to find a real employee by then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was already McConnell's and son. Well, I mean, there were younger kids to go in, too. I, I remember yeah, going to the shop. Yeah, there's always a new brother. <laughs> there's always another brother. Yeah, well, that's right. 
I mean, I remember going in as like a four-year-old or something, maybe five-year-old, and they had me counting nails. You know, I would. I don't know if they did it just. I think they might have done it just to keep me busy. Like I don't think I was doing it for. Yeah, they're real. not gonna rely on five-year-olds <laughs> count nails. <laughs> you know, put these in a pile of hundreds. I'm like, okay, I. Get- <laughs> But we clean it. Well, I guess we do. There would be a lot of cleanup too. They everybody, the kids were sent in the back to always like sweep the floor of the shop. Uh, we hated cleaning the shop, but I think we ran out of things to do. He says, "Okay, clean up the back." Oh, no, you don't <laughs> want to clean the shop. Yeah, and I felt like there was a hill behind the shop. You could run up and stuff. You could explore. Yeah, yeah. Well, we weren't supposed to. That was kind of rocky, and yeah, I think that's where Tommy came in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we weren't supposed to go up there because when you, if you went right up the road, it was uh, Belmont Avenue. I guess when you got to the top, you'd be at the city line area. Uh, But anyway, that was, uh, yeah, that was Valley Kenwood. Yeah, Rock Hill Road. Mm -hmm. Rock Hill Road, yeah, that's a very active road today. There's a lot of businesses there. Yeah. Anyway, all right, what, what's next? Should we next? talk some about economics? Economics, yeah. So, yeah, this got started because, uh, well, you suggested Bridget go to this uh, school. I forget what it was called. You sent Mises University. University. Yeah. Mises University. Yeah. And then she, you, she ended up yeah. not going, but you recommended a book that we read. And I actually read it, the whole thing, cover to cover. Very good. Actually, when I talked to you last time, I hadn't quite finished it, but I did finish the last, like, 20 pages I had left. So I I read the whole thing, including the 30-year update. Well, so. well, let's start with how you got into economics. It became an interest. Um, I guess I wanted to learn better how to invest money. And I started reading Economist, uh, starting with Milton Friedman. And I ended up liking the study of economics more than studying financial things. And it's actually a pretty, it's a rivalry in the community. Is it worthwhile more to study economics, which is theoretical, or is it worthwhile to study financial things, which is applied? And uh, the the economists will say, well, you understand all these, you know, leverage tools and methods, but the reason you keep getting burned is because you don't understand economics. And uh, if I worry about that theoretical stuff, I'll never learn anything about, you know, real business. And uh, so so I have uh, just gotten interested in more pure economists over the years. To the point I was going to seminars and meeting PhDs and talking about their ideas, reading their books and asking them why they said certain things and challenging them. And uh, it's just been a developing interest over the years. I didn't know you were challenging PhD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Bold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would get home and say, I can't believe I said that to that person. <laughs> I should have pulled back a little bit. <laughs> well, they're there to be... They're there to be challenged, I think. I mean, this book is about um, letting the free markets, um, you know, drive the economy. And that book is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Yeah, okay. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to give a quick overview of the free market? I want to talk about the plastic bag ban, too. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, the Philadelphia just recently banned plastic bags in all their um, commercial outlets. You can't, presumably, if you go shopping for something, they don't have plastic bags. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess we'd like to hear your views on well, that, whether that's a good idea. People and, who are opposing it say it's bad. Like, people who are for it are like, it's the climate change issue. People who are opposing it are saying it's bad for the economy and for business. Right, so yeah. is that really bad for business, I guess, is maybe our question? Well, I mean... This is, this is uh, stays an open debate. So the reason that that a plastic bag would become popular is because it's so handy. Um, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't break as easy. It, 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 it's more durable when, when the weather gets wet. If you're forced to other means, like a, like a paper bag, your groceries will fall out half the time because you'll be overloading your bag or you'll be getting wet or something in a plastic bag just has advantages. Plus, you can reuse the plastic bag. So this gets in the whole um, notion about the advantages of a free market. The products that become available for you to use as a consumer are available because that product has the most advantage. So people are looking at bags that get discarded, oh, they're clogging up the storm sewers because the bags are going down the sewers and they're causing all this um, degradable uh, you know, waste that's not degrading it. But really, the product exists because it's helping you get your food from the grocery to, to, to your table. And, uh, and, you know, people saying, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out a, a regulation that'll help you. Well, the, the argument pro-free market is every time you introduce a regulation, you're putting some kind of burden on the consumer and thereby some kind of break on the economy. Yeah. So the ni- 19th century America is considered like a great laboratory for free market because the reason... The reason it was more of a free market because there was less of a national government to enforce anything. There, there, there were no big departments like we had. So family would go out west and they would live off the land and then develop a community. And they're just naturally free market. And the economic growth in the 19th century America was tremendous. And we came from like a, a lesser developed country and a world power in 100 years. Right. And then, you know, a modern-day pro-free market um, argument was held the way Hong Kong was run under the British uh, because that was a, you know, five million-person colony where they were allowed to just go and build whatever they wanted to build with not much of a notion to have to apply to a bureaucracy to get things approved. And that was one of the most flourishing economies. Of course, it's been... It's been strenuous now because the Chinese are trying to take over with their way of doing things, and the people in Hong Kong are used to the way they're doing things, and, and there's a clash, there's tension. Right, yeah, the Hong Kong thing is kind of a mess. I learned a new term uh, recently called market externalities. Externalities. Externalities, yeah. Where producers, there are consequences to producing certain things, like plastic bags and, you know, water and air pollution also come into this, where the producers aren't necessarily paying for the consequences of what they're, the byproducts of what they're producing. 
like the plastic bag. They're not paying for cleaning the plastic bags out of the sewers or they're not paying for cleaning up the rivers and the so forth. So, and I feel like that's where a lot of the regulation, it comes in. And I'm just wondering how the free market can, can, uh, can put, take care put, of that. Because you mentioned the free market is all about taking the burden off of the consumers. Well, how can it put the burden back on the producers? The well, people who are like actually profiting from... The well, consumers. I'm not sure the burden shouldn't be on the consumer, too. I, I, I'm not sure it should necessarily be on the producer or the consumer. Well, but somebody's con- burden somewhere. Well, right. Somebody has to pay for these market... Ex- how do you say it again? Externalities? Externalities, yes. Yeah, I feel like somebody has to pay for them. Like yeah, it's it's not it's not direct. It's sort of an indirect, and and, and something has to be done to take to take care of it. Uh, one of the uh, problems that comes sort of little. There never is a perfect solution, and the problem is when you introduce uh, regulation. It's many times being introduced as the ideal solution, as the ideal compromise, and what they find out is get years down. You know, of, uh, of more activity, they like, well, we have to pass another regulation because that didn't work. Either people worked around it, or it, you know, it, it's tried to regulate something that isn't really done anymore. Um, you know, the and then you end up with a lot of regulations on the books that are old and you know, sort of, you know, misapplied. Um, people usually don't dissolve regulations; they just pile more on top of the old ones. So the, uh, the, the, the problems you're mentioning have been happening for hundreds of years because in the ancient cities, um, the waste was just dumped in the river. river yeah. The cities grew up around places where there were good ports. There was a lot of waste and, you know, dead horses and all kinds of things. And, and they had to figure out ways to clean that up. And, uh, and, and this has been progress and relapses and progress over the years. Uh, 20 years from now, it'll be something different than plastic bags. So, what I'm saying, well, if you just if you just weather through the plastic bags or coke or aluminum cans or whatever it was, you know, it just migrates and it comes on to something else. You know, this, this is today we're talking about all the problems with emissions because of coal. Well, over the years, it. The reason coal so popular is because it's so cheap and so accessible. So, you know, lesser developed countries around the world are you know, using coal because it's so easy to get it. You just put a shovel in there and you have fuel. But you find that you get other types of fuel and you get much higher burning values and, you know, they're, they're just more efficient. And of course, the market overall is trying to push to nuclear. And people are afraid of that. And uh, but but there there will always be those market forces trying new ideas, trying for the better ideas, and uh, and causing some problem that to be taken care of because it's a that, that problem is a byproduct. It, it's it's never going to change. But having a, a especially a national regulation where there's so much difference geographically. Uh, generally is associated with lesser growth rates in countries. Western European is more regulated than the United States, and their growth rates are always predicted to be higher than they actually turn out. 
Well, the plastic bag ban's not a national regulation. It's just little Philadelphia that's trying well, to keep them out of the no, rivers. A lot of cities are doing it. I guess so, but it's done city by city. What I would call a contagion to maybe a, to cause a little bit of a political discussion, but it's like uh, New York City was infamous for regulating sugary drinks. They didn't oh. want to have supersized drinks or something a couple of years ago when Bloomberg was mayor and then other people, wow, what an idea. Let's be healthier. Let's stop kids from drinking soda. Well, you're not really going to stop that from happening. That, you know, that happens like when we were growing up. You, you just get you, you just get those things rationed um, if your parents care about you. And, and uh, you know, that, that's, it doesn't, doesn't really get helped by, by uh, local regulation. And what frustrates me in listening to Europeans, they up with all these concoctions about trade unions and whatnot, but they're always predicting the great economic growth for the future. It's never happening today. So some Europeans are fine with that, and some Europeans are frustrated with it, and, and they have their own tensions about whether they in and out of the union and, and those things. Yeah. But, uh, places like Singapore and Indonesia, even China, So, if their economy is so good, why why do we like Indonesia is a third world country? Why is they they have been opening up over the years? So, did, and and this is to interject some of uh, my my theoretical leanings is as you pull back on regulations and let people do what they want to do, you just open more opportunity because uh, in the sixties and in the just as poor comparatively as they are today, but the economy was more closed to outsiders coming in and making investments. Now it's more open, and India is just loaded with international pharmaceutical companies that want to build big factories there, Uh, chemical companies, garment factories. You you, you look at all the products that we, we have in stores that a consumer puts in his or her hands, made in India, made in China, made in Thailand, um, it, there's, there's yeah. just more opportunity. And it, it's tragic and, and for us in that we lose those factory jobs over time, but, you know, it's incremental. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, their middle class is definitely growing in those countries. Which is a right. good thing. That's a good thing, yeah. Although they have ter- they have terrible pollution problems. I mean, really bad. I mean, they're they're going through these growth pains, and I you know I just think that they're going to get to the point where they're going to start putting regulations onto that because ultimately the people are going to want to clean uh, breathe cleaner air. They will get better. They'll get better because of better processes. Uh, you know, they'll come to an agreement on what you know how, how to restrict. Um, uh, production in some sense, and then it, it's always a compromise. But like I said, I mean, their their famous or infamous cases in in London with cholera, because what they was London was growing so fast, they were, and and this is the 18th and 19th centuries, they were taking a water supply not far enough upstream, and the waste would uh, because of the 
tidal situations and when things weren't flowing, the germs, the bacteria were actually backing up into the water intakes. Mm-hmm. And it took them a while to realize what happened. They said, oh, no, we have to get the water from much further upstream. And then somebody would come along to save money and make more of a profit and open up a port a little further downstream. People get sick again. So, you know, it's just yeah. some iterations, you know, yeah. for, for that to all balance and, and work out. New York City is supposed to have the best municipal water supply in the world because it's all coming out of the Catskills. Right. Or up the Hudson River. So right. Dirty, old, congested, crowded New York as uh, tremendous tap water. Yeah, I know. It, it flows right down. Did You You must have read the same book I did about the cholera epidemic, did you? No, the cholera epidemic is well documented. Yeah. It was a good... A lot of books. Yeah, Bridges right on that. It's yeah. all over the place. It's in TV shows. It's in books. Yeah. Yeah. Is, all right. I really enjoyed that book, though. <laughs> all right, well... All right, Rich. Well, you know, maybe we just have to do this again to to uh, go through some more memories and, uh, yeah. Pick your brain a little bit more. Pick your brain a little bit more. But uh, I think we're going to have to shut down Good the chat. It was enjoyable for my, for my end. Yeah. I would gladly do it again. Yeah. We will catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yes. Yep. We'll be back with another exciting topic and a few more guests coming up. Bye-bye. Bye.